Good morning. It's good to be with you. If uh, you don't know me, my name is Isaac. I'm one of the pastoral assistants here. Uh, and this morning we'll be hearing from Psalm 52. And so I invite you to turn there with me. Uh, Psalm 52 can be found in uh, the middle of your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, I invite you to use one of the Pew Bibles, which you are more than welcome to take home for yourself as well, to read for yourself or to read with a friend who perhaps might also not have a Bible to call their own. Psalm 52 can be found on page 474 of these Pew Bibles. And as we turn there, I'd like to consider a key term, the steadfast love of God. This term you'll find at the beginning and the end of this psalm, and it refers to more than just uh, the love of God in a, in a general sense, uh, though that is uh, still included. Uh, instead, all throughout the Old Testament, it refers to God's faithfulness to the promises that he has made to his people, the uh, covenant promise or the, the solemn oath, the pledge that he would redeem a new humanity through uh, this chosen people under the headship of an obedient, representative, servant, king. The steadfast love of God is taken by Israel to be the guarantee that their God's promises will come true. It's a guarantee against all odds. It's a guarantee even in, or perhaps especially for, the times when that anointed king is afflicted by the enemy. Psalm 52. To the choir master. A mascal of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Why do you boast of evil, a mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. Selah. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Selah. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction? But I am like a green olive tree, In the house of God, I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. Let's pray. Father, to trust in your steadfast love in your house is better than to trust in the strength of all the armies and all the riches of the world. For it is here in your presence, sending uh, under your revelation, your word, worshiping you at your initiation, obeying your word, is where we have true rest. We pray that you would open our eyes as we behold wonderful truths from your word. We pray that by it you would make us like green olive trees in your house, and that by it we'd have the endurance to wait on your name, for it is good. And it is in that name that we pray. Amen. Amen. What makes you confident? A salesman is confident because he knows his products, the needs of his clients, and his powers of persuasion. An athlete is confident before a competition because she has trained and perfected her craft. A musician is confident before a performance because he has dedicated hours of practice. A student is confident before an exam because he has studied the material thoroughly. A general is confident because of strategy and resources. A political candidate is confident because of her charisma and ability to craft policy. In other words, we're confident when we see that victory or success or the achievement of some goal is within our reach. We're confident when all signs are pointing to things going our way, to things working out exactly as we hope them to. We notice that confidence is in some way dependent on our situation, our preparedness, our uh, resources, our personal ability. 
we wouldn't expect uh, confidence from a salesman who thinks that his product is worthless. We wouldn't expect confidence from an athlete who never went to practice or to the weight room. We wouldn't expect confidence from a musician who never picked up his instrument or uh, uh, from a student who's never studied. We wouldn't expect confidence from a general whose forces are depleted or from a political candidate who was totally crushed in the debates. Though I suppose that doesn't stop some of our candidates. But we'd also not expect confidence from a man on the run, hiding in the wilderness and caves and amongst his nation's foes, whose enemy is the king of Israel with an army at his disposal. Yet this is exactly what we see expressed in this psalm. David, the one who was anointed to be king over Israel, has not yet assumed the throne and is far from it. According to the context of the psalm, he is pursued by the current king, Saul, who has been rejected by God for his disobedience. So uh, David's life at this stage appears to be far from the powerful life of a king. In 1 Samuel 21 through 22, the context we are told this psalm takes place, we see the story of David on the run for his life, where he receives assistance from Ahimelech, the priest, Doeg, the Edomite, who witnesses this taking place, then informs Saul, which results in Ahimelech, the priest, and the whole city of Nob being put to the sword. Now, to be clear, there's more in this psalm's polemic than uh, just this one man, Doeg. Uh, it's against wicked men in general. And we might say that uh, the specific setting of this psalm gives an occasion for David to write a song of confidence amidst oppression by the enemy. All of this is, is to say that what has prompted the writing of this psalm makes it seem like David is in no place to have confidence. It seems like he has uh, no room to boast, no room to believe in God's favor, no room to trust in his promises. It seems like he would uh, do better to question God's promises. It seems like he should be saying, God, did I misunderstand you? Is this really what you had in mind? Because right now I'm not king, and by the way, I'm running from my life from the guy who is. And if you haven't noticed, it hasn't been going great for me or for anyone else. But that isn't what David does in this psalm, is it? No, David boasts. David does have confidence. This psalm is a gloat. Even when it seems like he is the one who's losing, it is a showboat over his enemy. Note the tone of bewilderment in verse 1. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? Or as we might say it, why are you boasting an evil, tough guy? But notice what it is that gives David confidence, that makes it so absurd that his enemy would be boasting. God's steadfast love endures all the day. God's steadfast love, the assurance that his promises will come to pass, is an unquestionable guarantee that the wicked will be destroyed and the righteous exalted. David brags in this psalm that the steadfast love of God means destruction for the wicked because it means victory in the fullness of life for his righteous one. And this informs the exhortation for our time this morning. Trust in God's steadfast love for the assurance of life and victory. Trust in God's steadfast love for the assurance of life and victory. Three observations will form this exhortation. First, the boast of the enemy. Second, the response of the righteous. And third, the trust of the afflicted king. Notice first, the boast of the enemy. David, in verse 1, sets the tone for the rest of the psalm. Because God's steadfast love assures victory and exaltation for the righteous, it is vain and it is fruitless for the wicked to boast in their actions. But what exactly is the nature of the evil that he has in mind? Notice the heavy emphasis the psalmist places specifically on the action of the tongue. In verse 1, the mighty man boasts. In verse 2, his tongue 
plots destruction. He's described as a worker of deceit. In verse 3, he loves speaking lies over speaking what is right. In verse 4, he loves words that devour. If David has the immediate context in mind, he's likely referring to Doeg's words to King Saul, which led to the slaughter of the priests and the people of Nob. These are words that advance the cause of David's enemy, words that bring about destruction, words that consume and deceive and bring death rather than life. Yet the scheming tongue of Doeg is an occasion to condemn the speech of the wicked more broadly. But notice the kind of wicked speech that the psalmist condemns. He does have in mind the hurtful insults, the unkind words uttered in a uh, moment of lapsed judgment, the uh, careless slipping of the tongue. But the wicked speech that he targets is more than this. It is a systematic type of speech that is intentionally wielded to oppress, to destroy, or to lead astray. It is the speech that comes from a tongue that plots destruction, verse 2. It's not simply a belligerent tongue. This is a cunning tongue. It isn't necessarily the most vulgar or the most bombastic or the most clearly offensive. But it's a tongue that is expertly wielded, like a sharp razor, the psalm says, to maim and to cut down, to lead others astray, and to subject the righteous to the domination of the wicked. These words may not seem like much on the surface, and yet they are a deadly poison that consume and devour. Doeg's words, after all, led to an unimaginable slaughter. The serpent's words in the garden to the woman were inviting and tantalizing. It brought about the death that spread to all of humanity. So because of this, we should not underestimate the ability of the tongue to oppress and to destroy. What kind of tongue do you have? Is it a tongue that loves the truth, that loves righteousness, that loves to build others up? Or do you use your tongue to exalt yourself, to get a leg up on another person, to get something that you want from another, to put another person down? Some of you in here this morning are are very persuasive people. You you can use your speech to to get things done, to, to make things go exactly the way that you want them to go. But are you using your powers of persuasion to advance the truth? Or do you bend the truth ever so slightly or omit certain components of the story to get someone to join your cause or to pit one person against another? Others of you have words that carry a lot of weight. Perhaps you're a parent who, uh, speaking to a child or a boss speaking with an employee. Perhaps you're a spiritual or a church leader giving counsel or discipleship to a believer under your care. And this is something that describes you. Do you recognize the weight of your words? Do you weigh them carefully, knowing that these words can have great consequences, whether by being taken to heart or by resulting in some kind of drastic action? And do you use these words well to build up, to pursue causes that are just, to serve others? Or do you use these words to exert your own influence and stature over others? It's not lost on me this morning that some of you here uh, may leave the service and go home to relentlessly criticize your spouse. Or perhaps uh, share damaging information about someone else. And perhaps even now in your seat, your tongue is plotting destruction, simmering or scheming about how you uh, might get back at your spouse for a mistake that they made, or about how you can pass along a scandalous piece of news that you have just received. But this psalm is clear about what God thinks about the destructive use of our words. According to verse 5, things do not end well for the wicked man who wields his tongue like a sharp razor. So if you're here and you are careless with your words, or if you systematically use them to manipulate or to beat others down in order to exalt yourself over them, 
Listen to the warning of this psalm. The power of the tongue is something that God does not take lightly. We can use it either wickedly by deceiving, manipulating, and tearing down for the sake of our own gain, or righteously by seeking to use our position or our giftings to build and lift others up. So the mighty man in this psalm is a a man who boasts in evil, who plots destruction with his tongue, who deceives and devours with his words. But why? Why does the wicked man plot and behave this way? To put it as simply as the psalm does, it's because he loves it. He loves evil more than good. He loves lying more than the truth. He loves words that devour. His, his wickedness isn't just the result of one bad day. Sure, his circumstances or his situation may be an occasion for his behavior. But the bottom line here is, at the end of the day, he's just following his heart. He's doing exactly what he loves. He's doing what he delights in, what, what gives him pleasure, the things that he meditates on. His actions are just a logical outflow of everything that's already present in his heart. So the question now is this. What do you love? Not what do you think you love. What do you actually love? You may be here this morning and and think that you love God. You may be confident in this because you may not be a terribly sinful person. But what do the habits and the rhythms of your life reveal about what you love? Are you someone who is quick to grumble and complain? Do you find yourself easily or almost automatically irritated or angry, even if you never fly off the handle in a rage? The boast of the mighty man is an evil and wickedness. It's rooted in a love for evil. And in this psalm, the boast and this love are lived out in a destructive tongue that deceives and devours. But God is not impressed with such people. The victory, the exaltation, the enjoyment of the wicked may be something that they have at this present moment. They may have a reign of cruelty, and it may be something that is even at the expense of the righteous. But this time is very short-lived. Not only this, the the end the wicked one is heading to is complete and utter destruction and desecration. It's ironic that the one who delighted so much in destruction is himself destroyed, broken down and uprooted from his tent, that is the, the works of destruction that he trusted in, and cast out from the land of the living In the end, when God sets all things right, when he dwells with his people in the land of eternal life, of flourishing, and of rest, there will be no trace of the wicked one. He will instead be broken down forever. This is what it costs the evildoer. This is the end that awaits those who trust in their own might, in their own schemes, in their own resources, over the steadfast love of God. In fact, the steadfast love of God assures us that this is the case, that the righteous one will live and that the wicked will perish. That brings us to our second observation, the response of the righteous. In verse 6, the psalm shifts from speaking to the wicked in the second person to speaking about both the righteous and the wicked in the third person. The mocking tone of the psalmist also steps up another level as he describes the response of the righteous to what happens to the wicked. The initial response is a seeing and fearing at the sight of what God does to his enemies. The utter destruction of the evil person in verse 5 prompts the reaction of awe and trepidation from the righteous. It isn't a personal terror or a fear for their own lives because the righteous have trusted in God's steadfast love and have made him their refuge. Rather, it's an astonishment at the one-of-a-kind divine holiness of God carrying out his justice upon the evildoer. 
But then this fear moves into a triumphant laughter, into a mockery of the wicked man. It's an image of the tables being turned, of the oppressed and downtrodden people of God one day standing triumphantly over their oppressor after God has defeated and destroyed them. And then the basis for that laughter is explained. The wicked one trusted in his own resources and in his own destruction rather than in God. These verses ultimately give us the image that ultimately there are two kinds of people in this world. There are those who trust in God, and there are those who do not trust in God. There are those who make God their refuge, or their strength, as verse 7 says. And then there are those who do not make God their refuge, or their strength. There are those who place their confidence in the steadfast love of God. And there are those who do not put their confidence in God's steadfast love. There are those who find true flourishing and happiness in God himself. And then there are those who seek happiness and flourishing on their own terms. In this psalm specifically, the wicked man is mocked for finding his refuge not in God, but in the abundance of his riches and in his own destruction or in his acts of wickedness. And again, notice the ironic tone of this psalm. David, who is representative of the righteous broadly here, is writing from a place of affliction. As he is uh, being hunted down and downtrodden by the enemy. Yet from this state of weakness, with confidence and assurance, he mocks the strong man. The man with an abundance of riches. The man who is in power. For he has this certainty, founded on God's steadfast love, that he will be given life and victory over his enemy. And this irony that's that's found here in the psalm is just like the irony that characterizes the difference between the people of God and the people of the world today. To trust in God, to be an obedient servant of God, looks like weakness from a worldly perspective. It looks like forgiving someone who has wronged you, not pursuing vengeance or harboring bitterness. It looks like the humility of confessing sin to trusted brothers and sisters. It looks like being obedient to God's commands and teachings, even if it costs you your reputation or your job or perhaps close relationships. It looks like the the giving of your precious time and resources to devote yourself to the gathering, to praying with and building up the church. It looks like the submission of our whole lives, all of our wants and desires and feelings and obedience to God's commands. To put it briefly, it looks like dying to yourself. And so because trusting in God looks like weakness, the way of the world is to not trust in God, but in the things that give us worldly power, worldly flourishing, worldly happiness. So we often put our trust in the abundance of riches or worldly resources, material possessions or positions of influence. Whether we have them at the moment or not, we worshipfully strive to acquire them because we see them as the key or as the means to true happiness and flourishing. Or we find our refuge not in God, but in our own destruction, in our actions of unrighteous disobedience, as verse 7 says. Now the destruction that this mighty man takes refuge in in the context of the psalm likely refers to the direct acts of destruction and oppression over the righteous ones that are the means, in his mind, to attaining exaltation and flourishing. In other words, the destruction that the wicked man takes refuge in are his actions of self-exaltation at the expense of the weak. Now, I recognize that uh, most of us likely do not see ourselves as enjoying uh, our current possessions or our station in life as being at the expense of someone else as being the the product of some kind of destruction. And I'm not here to to give any judgments or interpretation or any social or economic uh, uh, issue, whether at home or abroad. Uh, But what I will submit is that we should be willing to recognize when the material well-being of some, perhaps even ourselves, uh, come at the expense of other image bearers. 
And if and when we make these recognitions, we should be willing to oppose them, even at cost to ourselves. Now, these costs may be as simple as the discomfort as agreeing with the other political party on a particular issue. It may mean reevaluating the business practices of our workplace or some of our favorite brands. Again, this is not a definitive judgment on everything going on in our world today, but a suggested application of what it might mean to trust in the steadfast love of God over the abundance of resources and acts of destruction. But self-exaltation at the expense of others doesn't necessarily need to be a large-scale, systematic oppression. Pursuing one's own sense of flourishing or happiness can happen through direct acts of destruction in interpersonal ways. One example of this is marital infidelity, sexual or otherwise, where one pursues one's own personal sense of happiness or flourishing at the expense of destroying another person or household. The same is true with slander of gossip, the attempt to make one's way into some inner circle by pushing another person down and out. But we can also take refuge in destruction in indirect ways. We can seek the exaltation or flourishing of the self at the expense of others in ways that may not seem directly obvious. In fact, the self-obsessed ethic of our world today is guilty of precisely this. The world asks, why does it matter what I do in the privacy of my own home or in my own bedroom or with my body or with my time or with my mind? If I'm being true to myself, if I am doing what I feel to be most deeply true about myself, trying to find the true flourishing and happiness that I need for myself, then what's the big deal? But friends, the, the idea that we can all pursue happiness on our own terms, apart from God's revealed commands in a vacuum, without affecting anyone else, is not only a myth, but it's also destructive, even if indirectly so. Augustine, the North African theologian, wrote on the destructiveness of self-love all the way back in the 5th century. Uh, He described two cities marked by two loves. There's the city of God that is marked by the love of God. And in this city, the the citizens uh, trust in the steadfast love of God, even in weakness and even in affliction. Yet this single shared love means that this city is all ordered in the same direction. They are all going the same way, seeking the same goal. But the city of man is characterized by love of self. And in this city where every person is pursuing a different love, a different goal, a different end, a different vision of the good life, a different vision of flourishing, there will necessarily be competing loves, competing visions of flourishing. And so, disorder and chaos, and yes, destruction. Now, I'm opposed to a system of government that enforces only one love from its citizens. Uh, What we love isn't something that can be coerced. Uh, This illustration is simply to demonstrate how not trusting in the steadfast love of God, but in one's own resources, in one's own vision of the good life, according to some standard other than God's, is taking refuge in destruction. And once again, notice the contrast between the one who trusts in God versus the one who trusts in his own means for exaltation and flourishing. The one who trusts in God laughs and and mocks at the one who does not. The world may see genuine flourishing as something that's attained by, by trusting in your own resources, as being stronger and more powerful and richer than others, as having the freedom to do what most deeply feels to be true to you, even if these things are attained at the expense of someone else. The world may see trusting in God as a path toward weakness. It is a path of obedience amidst suffering, and even if it leads to suffering. It's a path of giving up the self and entrusting the self to God. But Jesus says that it's, it's the one who loses himself who finds true life. And Paul says that God uses what is foolish and weak in the world to put, the, to put to shame what is wise and strong in the world. The psalm tells us that in the end it is these weak and afflicted servants of God 
who are given life and victory over the wicked one, who trusted in himself and in his acts of destruction. So if you're someone uh, here this morning who is uh, refusing to trust in God and instead trust in your own resources, in your own view of what brings life and happiness, listen to the warning. See that this is taking refuge in your own destruction. And see that taking refuge in such things is in vain because of God's steadfast love. And especially if, if you are someone here this morning who is directly and intentionally oppressing uh, and breaking others down for your own power and your own exaltation, listen to the warning of this psalm. Those who destroy and break others down, you will be destroyed and broken down forever if you do not repent. And to those who are here this morning who are suffering or who are experiencing being broken down and oppressed and downtrodden, uh, let this psalm be of comfort to you. Trusting in God's steadfast love, obedience amid suffering, in contrast to what the world tells us, is true flourishing as David indicates later in the psalm. And it is so because God's steadfast love assures us of true life, of true victory, and of exaltation over the enemy. But when, but when I say this, please do not hear me saying that, especially if you are someone who is experiencing abuse or injustice of any kind, that uh, simply what you have to do is, is deal with it, that you just simply have to grin and bear it. Uh, in fact, if, if this describes your situation, we would encourage you to speak with one of the elders or male or female deacons. Uh, these are people who are safe for you to meet with um, and would love to, to help you if that describes your situation this morning. What this is to say, though, is that trusting in God's steadfast love in times of affliction can give you the same confidence as David, who was able to taunt and jeer at his enemy while he was being persecuted. For this steadfast love is the assurance of life and victory. Another question that's raised right here is, is when? When will the righteous ones who right now are experiencing weakness and affliction be able to make these kinds of statements and boasts? Because for every psalm of confidence like this one, there's a psalm that says, How long, O Lord? Let me first say that in our present moment in this world, while Genesis 3.15 tells us that there is a very real enmity and hostility between uh, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, between those who are in Christ and who have trusted in Christ versus those who are in Adam, those who have not trusted in Christ, this hostility is not something that is uh, fully revealed until the last day when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. And even though Revelation 19 tells us that on that day God is praised for bringing justice to the wicked, in our current moment, we are to remember that we were also once enemies of God when he had mercy on us. We are to remember that God does not delight in the death of a sinner. And so we are called now to pursue those who are lost, to love and to have mercy on our enemies and to forgive those who have wronged us. But if this uh, rejoicing in our final exaltation and our victory is a future reality, what is our posture supposed to be right now? How are we to look ahead to that day if our current moment is plagued by affliction amidst obedient suffering? What does it mean for us when we trust in God's steadfast love today for the assurance of life and victory? And that brings us to our third and final observation, the trust of the afflicted king. In verses 8 and 9, David turns the focus from the mighty man to himself. And for the first time in his psalm, he gives us a description of his true state even in the presence of affliction. Specifically, he tells us that he is like a green olive tree in the house of God. In spite of the destruction that he is experiencing, in spite of the persecution that he has endured, 
even though he is on the run, even though a wicked man reigns when he was promised to be king, even though he is afflicted by the enemy, David tells us that even now he is in possession of true flourishing and life and abundance. Notice that even though this final victory and final exaltation are future realities, he has present abundance because he has this assurance of future hope. In fact, look at the, the state of the righteous in comparison to the future of the wicked. Well, the wicked man will one day, verse 5, be uprooted. David is firmly planted as a flourishing olive tree. While the wicked will be cast out of the land of the living, David is as, is as an olive tree in God's house, in his presence where there is life to the full. And in unexpected turn of the tables, we see that the man who is experiencing genuine abundance is not the mighty man. It's not the man with many possessions, the man with an army on his side. It's the man who's afflicted. It's the suffering servant of God. But notice the source of David's abundant life. It's not simply in the fact that he is afflicted. Suffering in and of itself is not what, what brings flourishing. Uh, no, David can describe himself as an olive tree in the house of God because he has trusted in God's steadfast love. The steadfast love of God is the assurance that David will receive life to the full and victory and exaltation over his oppressors. God's unwavering commitment to his promises is the sure and steady anchor for David to latch onto as he awaits the day where he inherits the throne that he has promised. All of God's mighty and faithful deeds in the past, his deliverance of his people from slavery, his giving the people the promised land, his continual patience amidst his people's disobedience, these bear witness to the truth that God's promises cannot fail. And so his promises to David cannot fail, even in the midst of being hunted by his enemies. More than this, God's steadfast love and providing assurance of hope gives David the strength to be obedient in the midst of suffering. Whether it's obedience that leads to suffering, or whether it's obedience that is in the midst of suffering, it is a delight for David to be God's afflicted servant so that he might inherit the throne promised to him, so that he might inherit the crown as one who has been tried and tested and found worthy to receive it. Even more than this, David can rejoice in suffering because the life he has is not a life that is dependent on any circumstance this world may throw at him. It's a life in which he has communion and fellowship with the triune God himself. God has life in himself, so true life is found in relationship with him in his presence. There is no other place where life is as full and as abundant as in the house of God. And so what does David do in the meantime while he is experiencing affliction in the world? He praises God in gratitude, and he waits. More specifically, he waits for the name of God. Now, God's name here refers to the fullness of his glory, his holiness, and his sublime character. And especially in this context, David has in mind the full manifestation of his steadfast love, the climactic fulfillment of his promises accomplished through his supreme power and might. It is an eager, forward-facing longing for when God, for the sake of his own name, for the sake of his own glory, faithfully delivers and exalts his suffering servant on account of his faithful obedience. And this prayer, this hopeful, expectant, trusting prayer by this afflicted servant anticipates the expectant trust of the true and better David, the true and better suffering servant, the true and better afflicted king. Jesus Christ, who, though he existed eternally in the form of God, added human nature to himself 
And in his human nature, he was afflicted. He suffered under the normal weaknesses of human flesh. And he was afflicted by enemies. He suffered under the hands that opposed him and pursued him and pierced him. And he suffered under the opposition and affliction of the spiritual enemies of the devil and his followers, these uh, spiritual rulers and authorities, as Colossians calls them. Yet even amidst this suffering and affliction, Jesus was perfectly obedient to the will of his heavenly Father. He perfectly obeyed every command. Though he eternally existed as God and had every divine prerogative as God, as man, he perfectly obeyed the will of the Father even amidst his suffering and even when it led to suffering. He was obedient even to death on a cross where he stood condemned in our place. And in our place, he took the punishment of sin that we deserved in becoming a curse for us. But because of Christ's faithful obedience, even, on, even unto his death on a cross, he has been highly exalted, raised from the dead, exalted and glorified to the right hand of the Father, where he has assumed the eternal throne of David, received the name that is above every name, and has been giving victory over his enemies. God's afflicted servant has been exalted on account of his obedience. And in his death, in his ascension to the Father, he has made a way for us to come to God so that all who call upon his name, who trust in his steadfast love, will be saved. He has made a way so that those who once put their trust in the abundance of their riches and their works of destruction, who were once like Doeg the Edomite, enemies of God and enemies of his anointed one, might be saved. Scripture says that while we were these enemies, Christ died for us, so that all who place their trust in him can be reconciled to God and devoted to God as his holy children. So for those of us who have made this our trust, for those who have trusted in God's steadfast love, manifested in the sending of his Son, we have been united to him by his Holy Spirit. And so, because we have been united to Christ, all that belongs to him belongs to us. All of his benefits are ours by faith. Because we are in Christ, because we are united to him as our representative, his faithfulness and his obedience amidst suffering is ours. The power of his resurrection life is ours. The power of his ascended reign in the heavenly places is ours. And so these benefits of union with Christ today, when when we are, like David, afflicted and scorned and torn down, are the grounds and the power to be conformed to Christ in his sufferings, to carry our cross, to be obedient in the midst of affliction. Now that our old self has been put to death, the resurrection power of our new self is to be like Christ in his suffering, in submitting our whole lives to the will of our Heavenly Father, even in the midst of affliction, and even when it leads to affliction. And we can, when this is true of us, we can say, like David, in the middle of his testing, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. All that is Christ's is mine. I am worn. I am downtrodden. I am under the heavy hand of affliction. Yet I have life to the full because I have fellowship with God. For I have trusted in his steadfast love. This doesn't mean that we won't be sorrowful. This doesn't mean that we won't weep. This doesn't mean that we won't always feel like we have an abundant life. But what it does mean is that this, this abundant life is what is most fundamentally true of us. That this fellowship with God means this is life to the full and that this is what is truly in our possession. So my exhortation this morning is to trust in God's steadfast love for the assurance of life and victory. His faithfulness in raising up his obedient servant Jesus Christ is the assurance that he will raise up his servants who are united to him by faith. It is the assurance that the struggle in putting sin to death is worth it. 
So trust in the steadfast love of God as you struggle against the sin that so easily entangles and seems ever-present, that seems it can never be cast off. The steadfast love of God assures us that the pain, the humility, and all your wrestling is worth it. Trust in the steadfast love of God by not seeking vengeance against those who have wronged you, by not harboring bitterness against them. Instead, trust in the steadfast love of God by forgiving, by loving your enemies, and by seeking their welfare. Forgiving and loving those who have wronged you greatly doesn't mean that that there are no consequences to their actions or that justice cannot and should not be done. What it does mean is seeking justice on God's terms and desiring the person's spiritual and overall well-being so far as external circumstances in God's justice will allow. Trust in the steadfast love of God by giving yourself for the good of others, especially those of the household of faith. God has entrusted each of us with some kind of good, be it uh, something material, could be some kind of talent, music, carpentry, counseling, um, affinity for technology. But these gifts are not primarily for you, for your own self-advancement and for your own self-exaltation. So for the good of others. So if you're wondering how you can begin to use what God has given you for the good of others, you can start by asking yourself what need you see around you that your giftings might be able to meet. You can start by looking around at the household of faith, the the church, and from there you can branch out more broadly to your community and so forth. Trust in the steadfast love of God by waiting, as the psalm says. But waiting here doesn't refer to a passive sitting back. It isn't a waiting in line for your turn. It is an active, hopeful, and expectant waiting. We as a congregation are blessed to have many young and first-time parents among us. But when a couple finds out that they are expecting their first child, what does it mean for them to wait on that child? Do they sit around and try to find something to do for nine months? No, expectant parents schedule regular doctor's appointments. They, they buy and receive necessary goods and, and items. They set up and create a space for the baby that's on the way. Some read lots of parenting books. In other words, it is an active and expectant waiting. And the same is true with us. We wait for the the fullness of God's glory and steadfast love by actively putting the old man to death and putting on the new man with the assurance and the expectation that his promises will be brought to completion. And as David does, we wait for God's name in the presence of the godly, in the presence of his saints. And here we see that the church is not simply a club of Christians. No, the the church is a gift from God for his people. It's an embassy of heaven. It's the city of God made up of pilgrims who are marching towards that heavenly city. While we await Christ's return, while we live in what scripture calls the present evil age, we need each other. We need the preached word. We need baptism and the Lord's Supper celebrated in our midst regularly to continually reorient and reshape and redirect our hearts towards the heavenly city that we are marching to. The book of Hebrews doesn't command Christians to gather together just because, but so that they might receive the God-ordained means to persevere in the midst of affliction. Friends, we need the church. And for those of you this morning who would not call yourself a Christian, what do you put your trust in? Do you find your trust in the abundance of riches by striving to gain or to keep them? Do you see the key to true flourishing as being through self-exaltation, as being true to yourself, attaining whatever you feel to, uh, that you need to find some sort of self-fulfillment? If so, this, this gospel, this good news that we proclaim here at Christ Church Westchester offers you true flourishing, It offers you true power and true wisdom. It is the offer for yourself to be made into what you were truly made to be. 
But the way that these things are offered are a bit unexpected to our world today. The true flourishing that is offered is one that depends on no earthly treasure because our treasure is laid up in heaven. The true power that is, uh, that is offered is a power manifest in weakness and carrying your cross. The true self-fulfillment that is offered is gained by losing yourself, by giving your entire self over in body and in soul to the Lord Jesus Christ and following all of his commands no matter what you may feel to be true inside you. Though this kind of life may be uh, an unexpected flourishing, it is nevertheless life to the full, for in this life you are remade into who you are made to be, one who enjoys blessed communion with God in relationship with him, glorifying him in his presence and proclaiming that glory out over the world as we were made to. And the way that you can receive that this morning is by trusting in the steadfast love of God, by giving yourself over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. See, this glorious union with God that we were made for was severed by sin. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God and deserve to pay the penalty for that sin under his wrath. But in his mercy, God sent Jesus, his his son, to stand in our place on the cross so that all who turn from their sin and trust in him may have eternal life. And this is the life that we are calling you to today. But for all of us this morning, what makes you confident? The world offers us countless things to place our confidence in. But there's only one thing, something that comes from beyond this world, that gives us the confidence to be patient amidst affliction. This confidence gives us the assurance of life that we will have eternal fellowship with God and enjoy Him in His presence. It gives us the assurance of victory that our enemies will be defeated and our patient, obedient trust in the Lord will be vindicated. So church, trust in the steadfast love of God for the assurance of life and victory. Let's pray. Father, we praise You that You are a God who is faithful to keep your promises. We praise you for you have done it, for you have accomplished salvation once for all in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. Because of his faithfulness, you have raised him up and highly exalted him, and you have united your people to him so that we may have eternal life and life to the full, communion with him. So we ask that you would strengthen us by your spirit to continually put to death our sin, and continually trust in your steadfast love. Help us to wait for your name and to long for the day when we will be with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please continue.